The Energy Gang is brought to you by Huawei Technologies. From devices to telecom infrastructure to cloud computing and convergence solutions, Huawei is rethinking every link in the IT chain to deliver a better future faster. Huawei is now offering its Fusion Solar PV solution, a unique approach to integrating, optimizing, and digitizing solar power plants. See how to improve your solar project at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I dot com. For the week of December 17th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. This week, the future of mobility. The world's biggest automakers are suddenly under threat from consumer tech companies in Silicon Valley. Are they up to the challenge? Then, it's been a huge month for solar. First, an international climate agreement, then a favorable decision on net metering in California, and now a very good chance of a multi-year extension of a key federal tax credit. That's still uncertain, and we'll talk about the prospects this week. We'll end with a look at the climate deal that was signed in Paris. We will start with introductions. I'm Stephen Lacey, your MC and editor of Green Tech Media. In Washington with me is Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions, who has uh, been consumed by tax and spending bills in Congress this week. How are you? I'm doing great. I had the unfortunate um, happening of falling asleep for the two hours in the middle of the night the other night when the tax bill and the omnibus were released. Um, but, you know, I got up at 3.30 to, to get them off the Internet. Oh, that, that pesky sleep and being with your family. <laughs> in New York is Jigger Shaw of Generate Capital. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm enjoying the unseasonably warm temperatures. I think we're like 10 degrees above normal New York City temperatures. Um, I had my AC on the other day. It was crazy. <laughs> I'd like to think that we're a little family on this show, but today is the first time we actually have real family on the show. Anand Shah leads the Autonomous Mobility Unit at Albright Stonebridge Group, which is a strategic advisory firm based here in D.C. Uh, Anand worked previously at Audi and the BMW Group, where he analyzed all the forces changing the auto industry, and we're going to talk about what those are today. Anand also happens to be Jigger's cousin, um, and the spirit of disruption, I guess, runs through their blood. Anand, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, Jigger. We need to get the most important thing out of the way first. What is the most embarrassing thing Jigger has ever done at a family event? That's a complex question, but... but, but <laughs> like, are there, so there are different there's scales so, of so embarrassment? Many. But Jigger has a particular propensity of saying exactly the wrong thing at the right time. So he, uh, he, uh, he's, he's probably embarrassed himself more times than he'd like to admit, but I defer that question. <laughs> That's why Very people well love said. him on this show. <laughs> exactly. yeah, I'm finding this so hard to believe. <laughs> Very well said. Incumbents in the auto industry are facing a trifecta of threats, electric cars, sharing services, and autonomous vehicles. Together, they are changing perceptions about car ownership and the meaning of mobility. So our senior writer, Julia Piper, recently wrote a piece on this trifecta. I will link to it in our show notes. Anand, you are basically tasked with modeling that future uh, at BMW. And when you looked at this combination of factors, I'd like to know what you found. Are these forces good for automakers or a genuine threat to their long-term viability? Well, I can't I can't speak for BMW, but I can tell you, um, generally speaking, I, I think that the the jury's still out on exactly what this means. Um, the trifecta involves several other pieces that I, I'd love to add. One, uh, the force that seems to be disrupting the auto industry isn't an automotive force; it's a it's a digital force, and digital is something that the auto industry has largely confined to. Uh, sort of internal electronics and media systems, and uh, they've gotten more electronic over time. But but the idea of a connected digital force that has new possibilities of business models isn't traditionally something in the wheelhouse of the auto industry. The second piece of it is the, sh the sharing component is partially an economic force, but it's also a generational one. And I think that we're we're beginning to see as many of us know, that, that the attitudes towards sharing and sharing vehicles or not owning a vehicle is something that is growing significantly in what is not currently the auto industry's customer base. Uh, it's a customer base that is emerging and hasn't yet hit um, 
that, that necessarily hit the age or the time where uh, they're largely to likely to be the large number of customers for cars for car companies. So I think um, those two forces and the the caveats around them are creating a a period right now where we're seeing the intersection. Uh, or if not the collision of very different views of what can happen when digital uh, really touches transportation and, and personal mobility. All right. So give us some more examples of the ways that digitization will improve the quality of the car, the driving of the car, and how we interact with it. You know, I, I, if I took aside for a second, I think one, one sort of analogy to this is that if you looked at the iPhone in 2007, you know, many people were speculating that Apple was building a phone, and, and the prevailing conversation of the critics was, well, you know, Apple doesn't know anything about building phones, and, and a phone really is this long battery life, smaller, slimmer device that allows you to do things like SMS uh, with 12 buttons on it. And and the truth is, if, if we were to look at that in sort of a, a revisionist history, Apple was never building a phone. They were building a miniature computer. And that miniature computer replaced the category of phone. And I think that the two forces in digitization, similarly in America, in, in sort of the auto industry right now, one is the increased desire of a digital community of consumers to see more connectivity in their cars. Things like, can I pass my music to the car? Can I push uh, a location to the car so it automatically seamlessly works with navigation? Um, can I understand and find my car? Can I unlock it? Can I c connect it with my home so that the house knows when, when I'm coming home and turns on the lights and turns on the air conditioner or whatever it might be? That's one force. The second force of it, I think, is the more disruptive one, uh, akin to the miniaturized computer, is that, that Silicon Valley really is looking at building robots. And these robots are, are what, you know, what, what Google has been talking about and working on, what Uber, uh, you, can, you can perceive from the moves that they've made of who they've recruited. Many are speculating about what Apple is attempting to do. And even yesterday, I saw a piece on George Hotz, who was one of the hackers of the iPhone in early days that has put together an autonomous car in the last two and a half months out of his garage in San Francisco and, and did a demo with Bloomberg. This force is a different kind of digital force, and it's one that has the potential to dramatically change the way consumers interface with how they go from point A to point B. Uh, and, you know, if you look at, you know, Elon Musk said this really well a couple of months ago where he said the, the automobile is perhaps, perhaps the most underutilized machine in history. And it's a very highly engineered machine that sits around in America for, you know, 96.2% of the time. So this is a massive opportunity for people that can innovate and the technology that's coming, especially with robots and autonomy, you know, have the potential to be the technology that finally allows people to address that underutilized time. So Apple wasn't building a phone and Silicon Valley isn't building a car. They're building a robot. I like that. And I've been working in this clean transportation space since, I guess, 98 when I was working with the Department of Energy. And the, the conversation is always a bilateral one. So it's always between the automaker and the car buyer. And people always say, if the car buyer wants it and we have demand, we will build it, right? And that's the classic argument that you hear all the time. When, you know, I think what's changed now is that, that we realize now that cities are subsidizing um, the car companies to the tune of trillions of dollars, whether it's free parking spots and land for roads and all this other stuff. I mean, where does the change come from? It seems like it's coming from policy and from regulation, less from consumer trends. The interesting, another piece of the trifecta, which might end up being like a multifecta, is that in this case, consumer force actually can play a large role. So if you look at, you look at Uber as a simple example, right? Uber's sort of playbook suggests that we build something that people want, and if people use it, they become a, a complementary force to our desire to be able to grow. And they're able to to at least make argument and conversation happen at the policy level that perhaps was not possible without that consumer component. And I think similarly, you know, in autonomous, one of the concerns with autonomous is that it can significantly reduce the cost of moving around, right? Right now, 
I mean, if I take a step back for a second, many of the policies we have today in cities and urbanization are driven by a legacy of the automobile from the early 1900s and what you have to do to enable people to get to work to drive a car. And yeah, that's related, that's, you know, resulted in a bazillion things that may look like subsidies if you start talking about them together, but they're really currently disconnected. So when, when Autonomous sends this major consumer signal, which is, you can do what you need to do as an individual in a way that might even be better than owning a car today. You see this major consumer force saying, why won't you let me have this? From a city perspective, you know, this actually may end up resulting in bringing these broken pieces together, which are unaddressable subsidies, and actually address them. For example, you know, when people are paying for mobility by the mile, or by the kilometer, or by any sort of unit, a lot of the needs of being able to monetize those can get combined into a simple economic form that isn't, I'm subsidizing roads that have to be wider than they should be so that people can park on them, or I'm having to subsidize parking spaces in certain places that could be land used for affordable housing or other things just so wealthy people who have vehicles can get to them or people who don't use transit. All of those things suddenly become part of the same conversation. And the reason for that is you have this you know, massive flock of vehicles that's capable of delivering human needs in ways that also meet human interests, which is I, it can be differentiated. I can be by myself in a car. There can be multiple people. And the impact of that on other things around me goes down significantly. So how do you change the culture of people wanting to be in a car by themselves? Or do you? Well, I, I think, you know, that's that's part of the question is being in a car by yourself versus being in a car that you're driving yourself. And I think that, you know, m many people will tell you that people don't want to give up the joy of driving. And I might reverse that question and say, when do actually people actually enjoy driving? And, you know, that might be a contentious argument, but many of the advertisements you see on television for a car, you know, has people going at high speeds or driving on winding mountainous roads or, you know, on Highway 1 in California with the ocean behind them and their hair and, you know, in the air. And the fact is that that happens very few moments in a person's consumer sort of vehicle movement life. Most of the time, they're sitting behind the wheel of a car, angry at someone who's double parked or trying to get around someone else or someone who's putting on their lipstick when at a stoplight or trying to text on the phone. And these are this is time that people want back. So the first question is, you know, is not driving a human desire? And one other way of answering that is, if you look at people who have the money, many of them have a chauffeur. If you look at places in, in emerging markets, if you can afford a driver, they're actually an, an advantage. They let you utilize your vehicle more. The same car can serve multiple people, including guests and friends and other people in the family, drop you off at work, go back and take your kids to school, many different things, which an autonomous car could do. So I think that's the first question. The second question of, of privacy and being by yourself, um, I think is also plausible. There's a bunch of innovation to be had there. And, you know, I'm not going to argue that everybody's going to get into minibuses that are stacked and every seat is being utilized. But even the idea that individuals in a single car in an autonomous vehicle will increase the capacity of roads to carry large numbers of people for cars to be able to platoon and drive next to each other um, to be able to reduce traffic is still very, very significant and hard to ignore. All right. So when you think about how Silicon Valley companies are approaching the car, um, how much further ahead are they going to be when these technologies actually start hitting the roads? So I guess the question is, are traditional automakers really equipped to handle this stuff? And I know you can't speak for any specific car company, but culturally, these automakers see, seem so removed from the innovative stuff that many of these companies in Silicon Valley are working on. So it's, it's a good question. I think one way of looking at that is to sort of think about how the auto industry has evolved and how Silicon Valley has evolved and, and sort of how they look at innovation. And one, you know, the auto industry has been, been around for a long time. Many of these companies are almost a century old. Some 
many decades old, and they've got a very tried and true process of of how they develop vehicles. They, uh, you know, they have an engineering department, they have a sales department, they have a an R and D department, um, they have a after sales department, and these departments look at trends that are coming, and they design a car, they put it at an auto show, and. Uh, they see what reactions are like and what their competitors are doing, and they refine them. And seven or eight years later, you see a car that that emerges with innovations that may have been looked at uh, almost a decade ago. And if you look at things like you know current innovations in cars that many many automakers talk about, say lane departure warning or you know automatic cruise control uh, um, or automatic braking, those are bought through suppliers. You look at a company like Mobileye, which has been doing this out of Israel. It's it's almost 15 years old, but really got traction 10 years ago. And this is something that's integrated by an automaker. So today's automakers are largely you know sort of benchmarks of where they want to see innovation go, but then they they drive innovation through suppliers and they do fantastic integration. And that is what, uh, you know, some of the best cars in the world are. Even a Tesla uses Mobileye technology, for example, for, for autopilot. And if you look at uh, Silicon Valley, they look at it differently. Automakers are talking about people don't want to give up driving. You know, cars don't get built this way. Um, there's a lot of regulations that have to change for safety and NHTSA and accidents. Whereas Google or Apple or Uber or uh, any other Silicon Valley company looking at this says huge market, $10 trillion spent around the world by people on everything from gasoline to car washes to their vehicle to insurance. You know, money that is spent for a machine that depreciates in value um, and is being used one 20th of the day. This is an opportunity. It's an opportunity that can be better than what you see today. So DNA-wise, you know, Silicon Valley is looking precisely at where they think consumers might want to go. If you build it, they will come. Whereas automakers see this as a disruption on the horizon of of an industry that has traditionally been very difficult to change. And they think that that uh, inertia is isn't going to move so fast, and we're right in the middle of this conversation right now. You hear Kia talking about testing cars, and you talk, you hear Mercedes talking about cars, and you hear GM talking about their super cruise control, and Ford saying they're going to test you know vehicles in California next year, and BMW is making noise, and Audi's got a car that's moving around with Delphi. But even beyond that, you hear Foxconn and WeChat starting to build a car, Baidu. You know, working on a car of their own. Google has their car on the road. Uber's building, uh, you know, an autonomous vehicle as well. We don't know what Apple is doing. There are Chinese billionaires that are putting money behind this. In some ways, this is a it's a massive push towards a technology that people now believe is possible, and someone has to build it. And it's a race which I think is akin to to the space race in the last century. This is the technology that. Everyone thinks it's transformative. No one really knows how to build it or how regulation is going to deal with it, but they all know it's possible. They know its potential is significant. So I think uh, we're at the early stages of that race, and it's going to move very, very fast in the next 24 to 36 months. I think we'll start seeing cars in many major cities being tested that have devices on them um, that Silicon Valley is programming for, but car makers may be partnering with. And I think there's just enormous amount of change coming. I was going to go back to the Apple issue because there was a the third annual breakout brand survey that came out that the agency asked participants, um, you know, in this electoral cycle, who would you prefer to run your government? And one in three people said Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, again, for the next generation, um, Apple and the most important word um, around brands is the word responsive, which also is about intelligence and being able to respond in real time. You know, you could buy Apple care. Consumers trust that brand, young consumers especially trust that brand to deliver more than the device. And I'm just thinking culturally, as you look over the next generation, if instead of thinking that the Ford is the truck that they want, that they're going to go to Apple. And Tesla's kind of set up their stores that way. So it's more of a technology shop than a car shop. I'm just wondering how you see that. You know, if I were to imagine for a minute or pontificate, I I think that increasingly um, how fast your car goes from zero to 60 or how fat the tires are or what the wheels look like uh, really are going to matter a lot less. 
And, you know, if you're riding in a car, it's, it's largely about the comfort, how you can use your time, how well it connects with, with other things that you do in your life. And I think this is a place that someone like Apple, for example, has enormous capability. They, they do many things well in the closed circle of people that use their, their devices and their services. And some of those that aren't Apple are much less like that. But if I were in Uber's position, Uber is trying to be that for, uh, um, for people that want to move. They want to be the thing that you think of that gives you a seamless experience that you trust, that you know is going to do something innovative you know, and is sort of watching out for you in the way that you want to be watched out for. And I think you know, everyone sees that as a play. Traditionally, when you were in a car you know, and if you were in a, in a Cadillac, you know, that environment was a Cadillac environment. It has emblems all over the place. The entertainment system is that way. The wheels are shiny. You know, and, and I think that is a major cultural change um, for for an industry that currently serves this need of people moving from point A to point B. Um, so I think that y- you'll find uh, an increasing amount of push towards the, the, the user experience of mobility and much less the emotional attachment to the nature of that mobility or status or what's in my garage or what I can show. And I think um, that's yet that story is yet to be written, but... Uh, I feel like uh, you know those in Silicon Valley sort of get this, and I think that car companies are also beginning to wake up to this, but don't know how to deal with it. So, if you're a policymaker, I mean, if this is all going to go down in 24 to 36 months, how do you attract the jobs to your state? How do you attract the, you know, the the pilot programs to your city? You know, how do you how do you cash in on this? In the near term, this means PhDs and people working on really sophisticated stuff if you allow a pilot, which is come up with a, um, a restricted way in which autonomous vehicles can operate in your jurisdiction, whether that's in a, in a dedicated lane or it's a district or a particular area where you're going to allow autonomous cars to move around. You'll get enormous amounts of smart people working on this. And I think there's a wild card uh, in international markets, in, in Chinese cities or new Indian cities or in the Middle East where somebody who has the power to do so might say that, look, we're just going to start by by uh, not allowing vehicles driven by people in this new city or in this particular area. And you'll find that pretty much every company working on this or that wants to work on it would probably knock on your door tomorrow and say, I want to be here. Um, so that's step one. I think in the longer term, this story is going to get far more complicated because as these cars get on the road and uh, and and as policymakers allow them to get on the road, uh, the number of vehicles on the road might drop. They may cost more, but this might result in lower manufacturing jobs. And for areas where manufacturing of vehicles or suppliers of co- car components uh, work, this is going to be an issue. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of personal pushback from older generation folks, somebody like me who grew up wanting a car and wanting to restore cars and feel like I'll never give up a car. Uh, I think there's a there's a period in which this is an issue. I also think safety, you know, currently occupies a lot of people's time, and uh, I, you know, I think that this, the safety story is a complex one. We we employ many technologies that uh, the net safety is significant. For example, airbags kill people every year, but they save more people than they kill. And I think autonomous technology will end up going down that path. And if you look at some of the moves that Google's making, they're trying to prove that look, we've run many miles, and these cars are safer than than human drivers, which may be true, but it's going to take some time for people to be able to accept that. And I think a policymaker, you know, especially a proactive one that sees this as the future, is going to have to find a way to address uh, social concerns around these things. So by and large, I think young people are, are, are seem willing to try autonomous technology. I think the, the, the challenge right now is to prove that when they try it, that they get amazed by it and not dissuaded. All it will take is one accident to set the regulation or the policy back. When you look at all these challenges, consumer behavior, the regulation that's evolving clearly slower than the technology itself, safety issues, will these potentially stop autonomous vehicles? Like, is there any scenario that you see that these will not hit the road or is it inevitable? I think right now, if, if you could call it a bold prediction, I think it is inevitable. I think this is a technology that is the first time that artificial intelligence and robotics are seen as something that could be a mass consumer movement that makes a lot of sense in a way that every single person on the planet could probably use it. And I think innovation is going to push it that way. 
Um, I think the speed at which that happens is is dependent upon a number of factors that you touch on. So, you know, everyone is afraid of of where the first accident happens, where the car has to choose, you know, between or has to make a decision between killing two people and has to you know, decide which one to kill, maybe the driver itself. And I think, you know, even though that's probably in aggregate safer than uh, drivers driving themselves, that seems to be a very complex issue. But yeah, to that give is you such a-, a bizarre scenario to just think about. I mean, I, I completely agree with Anand. I think, I mean, when you think about cars today, they are bad in every way. I mean, except for people who live on the coasts, like the East and West Coast, most people pay more for their car payment than pay for their housing payment today. I mean, you know, like, you know, cars are making people poor. Not only that, cars are one of the leading killers of people in the United States. It's far more dangerous to drive in your car than to fly or do some other stuff. I mean, I think when it thinks, when you even think, when you think about carbon, one of the best ways to solve carbon is to sell 75% less cars which is what autonomous gets you. So I, I just, I, I really, like, I really can't see how an accident or anything like that slows this down very much. Yeah, and to add, add a, an interesting example from another space, right, um, there was a conversation briefly after the German Wings air crash in, in, uh, in Europe a couple of months ago or earlier this year where people were wondering why they allowed a pilot to fly the plane when the plane could fly itself because the plane flying itself might have been safer than a pilot who wanted to kill people on it. And I think this conversation is going to is going to come to light. And uh, but I, I think there are ways of addressing that the policymakers can be smart about. So, for example, they could find ways to limit liability. They can make sure that every mile charged by an autonomous car, uh, you know, there's a couple of cents that goes into a pooled fund that is designed to be able to address that liability. But addressing that risk is going to be necessary. It's a bigger issue in America than it is in other countries where the drastic change from people driving to people not driving might actually be far more significant in terms of live saves. You could imagine in India, for example, you know, where the liability costs may not be as high, but the advantages are really significant, could end up becoming a leader in something like this. So this is a global story. And, and I think to address it just out of American fears, you know, m- might be missing the point. Okay, let's go through a couple scenarios here. If I'm an executive of a major automaker, what types of decisions and what things should I be thinking about over the next decade to prepare for this change? And if I'm an executive or the leader of a team uh, developing an autonomous electric vehicle at a tech company, what should I be doing to prepare myself to compete with automakers that have been doing this for a century? I, mean, I think the biggest question for, for executives of an auto company is to to get their head around what this innovation could mean to their industry. And they need to recognize that it's possible. And if they think it's possible, you know, I think car makers have no choice but to find a way to address it and, and or compete in it, if, uh, depending on the scenario that they see. If, if, I'm a, if I'm an innovator on the other side, I honestly, I'd see this as literally the biggest opportunity in, in, a, in very recent memory to, to play into a dramatic change in the world. So, you know, if you think of all the things associated with vehicles from, you know, from oil changes to tires to uh, parking lots to car washes to uh, increasingly entertainment in vehicles, things kids do when they're on a long ride, things we might do if you're sitting in the passenger seat, this touches a lot of time and a lot of attention of many people. And all of that's about to get transformed by um, the way people move around. I mean, even a simple example of a parent who spends half of their day, if they have two or three kids, uh, traveling around to pick up one kid here and drop them off at an after-school activity and do the same for the second or the third, may not have to do that anymore, actually is a dramatic change for that individual and how they spend their time and how they spend their money uh, on moving around and what they can do uh, that might be an alternative. So from a perspective of innovators, this is, this is huge. I mean, you know, I would start working on on everything from the car itself, but applications of that or particular uses at college campuses or at a, you know, for for schools or people moving around to schools or how people start addressing what people do inside of cars or being able to offer differential versions of that. Um, what else can you do in a vehicle? Can you do stuff for office and productivity that makes the ride to work um, something that can be part of an extended workday or part of the workday itself. There are many opportunities, and I think that we're going to begin to see, you know, 
a number of variations of this emerge as soon as broad acceptance of the fact that this technology um, is coming. And I think the wild card in all of this, is, as you've touched upon already, is is policymakers. And I think that policymakers need to get ahead of the game enough to understand that if they embrace this right, this can be a, a way to stay ahead globally uh, in terms of global politics and global geopolitics. It's a way to stay ahead in terms of innovation and job creation. Uh, it's a way to start addressing the issues that will come out of this, which might be everything from taxi drivers who may lose jobs and need to find places to, to work and improve sort of their value addition or in manufacturing where they're you know, lots and lots of jobs that, that may get changed. There are many issues here that need to get addressed, but we still have the time um, to figure out uh, how to do that in a way that's constructive for everybody. This reminds me so much of what's going on in the electric sector on the grid and how the incumbents are having to deal with disruptive technologies on the grid edge. It's it's fascinating. And a lot of the drivers, I think, for this will end up being um, environmental and carbon. I think that is the, it is a huge kicker for the policymakers for sure. And the big difference between this and, and, and the grid is that consumers are involved in this. And that's a major multiplier in terms of the force of change, right? So in, in many cases, in the case of, of, of current policy around electricity, around clean energy, around carbon, many of those conversations don't happen at the level of a normal person who spends more on their car in a month than they do on a house. But this will. And when you have thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of those people saying this is better for me than what there is now and that incentive is aligned with carbon, you, you add to the, the trifecta. Anand Shah leads the Autonomous Mobility Unit at the Albright Stonebridge Group. He joined us from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Now is time to take a pause and mention our supporter, our sponsor, Huawei Technologies. Huawei is a leading global information and communications technology provider operating in 170 countries. Huawei's new product, Fusion Solar, combines cutting-edge IT technologies and power electronics to digitize your solar power plant, optimize investment, reduce maintenance costs, increase power generation, and boost your rate of return with Huawei's Fusion Solar PV solution. Learn more at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. Huawei, building a connected world of endless possibilities. Something is happening in Washington so rare, so beautiful, it's almost hard to believe. Lawmakers in Congress are actually governing, and solar might benefit handsomely because of it. In fact, a bunch of renewables will benefit because of it. This week, House Speaker Paul Ryan announced a deal to fund the government through next fall. In that spending bill, Republicans and Democrats cut a deal in exchange for lifting a ban on exports of crude oil produced in the U.S. Wind and solar will see a multi-year extension of their tax credits with a long-term phase-out. This is probably the best chance the solar industry has to extend the investment tax credit. So a vote could come today, likely tomorrow. We're monitoring this in real time. Catherine is on it. Meanwhile, in California, regulators have issued a proposal on net metering 2.0 in the state. And in a surprise move, they want to keep compensation for rooftop solar at the retail rate. We'll talk about the implications in the second part of this conversation. First to Congress, let's evaluate this deal. Catherine, for people outside the negotiation process in D.C., I, this is kind of a, this was kind of a surprise. How did renewable energy tax credits get in this spending bill in the first place? So the wind production tax credit and investment tax credit was already in an extenders package that Senate Finance had passed out. That's the tax writing committee on the Senate side. So that was all part of a larger tax package. So they do have a tax package that is live that just passed the House this morning, and then it'll go on to the Senate, and that includes a two-year provision, which is when I say two years, it's retroactive. 2015 and then going forward 2016. So really, it's just to the end of 2016. That was sort of, that's the fallback position on renewables. Now, another conversation got started around, which, which has been going on for a while, to try to lift the 40-year oil export ban. And folks like Heidi Heitkamp, who is a Democrat from North Dakota, who's also very interested in renewables and proposed a five-year 
you know, renewable extension earlier this session um, was very for repealing this 40-year ban. That, that conversation's been going on for a while. And I think that they thought with this larger spending bill, hey, maybe if we give some people this 40-year lift, this lift on the ban, that we can have some sweeteners in it. So let's figure out what are some of the sweeteners. And some of those sweeteners were actually getting a longer term extension and phase down for wind and a longer term extension and phase down for solar with commenced construction language in it. So those were part of the sweeteners. Now, there were other things that were also bargained, like no EPA riders, um, no Planned Parenthood riders. There were a whole lot of things that were thrown in there to try to make this something that was palatable to everybody. But at the end of the day, they put this bill together called the PATH, which is Protecting Americans from Tax Hikes Act of 2015, uh, which is both funding the full government. So it has like DOE appropriations for renewables. It also has the Green Climate Fund in it um, to fund projects through the Global Environment Facility and things like that. But it also has these the, the oil export ban lift and all of these tax provisions used as sweeteners to that. Okay, so this would be huge for solar to have the tax credit through the next few years and then have this phase down. It would provide a lot of certainty. It would give us, we predict, an extra 25 gigawatts of solar in the U.S. Um, it would probably Which is do way this- low. Yeah, you, well, we're we're pretty conservative, right? And and that's actually higher than what BNEF is saying. BNEF was really conservative, so we're yeah, about you guys in the middle. have all been low for years. This is going to unlock four hundred billion dollars of additional investment between now and twenty twenty three. Where where did you get that number from, Jigger? That's my number. I mean, that's the analysis I've been doing since 07. It's basically like, you know, we're going to have a, almost four hundred gigawatts of wind and solar capacity built in this country by twenty twenty three. Okay, Catherine, so there's this major economic boost. Everyone in the business community is really excited about this. But there are a lot of people who don't like this deal as well. Who is against this, Catherine? There are a lot of people against the deal. So first of all, when they were negotiating all the new renewable sweeteners, the Koch brothers were pushing really hard against that. They said, we don't even know if we're going to create enough jobs with lifting the oil export ban to make up for all the jobs that the solar guys are going to create. Um, interestingly, Edison Electric Institute, which was originally pro-solar when solar first started with the with the original solar tax credit, they were on board. EEI was pushing against it, certainly American t- for tax reform, but also against the deal are the environmentalists because of the oil export ban lift. So it's going to be really tricky for Pelosi and Ryan to be able to come together and bring enough of their caucuses to vote for this. Um, that's the House side. The Senate side, I think, is very much more supportive because there's so many more Democratic senators from states that have um, oil and gas needs as well as renewables, especially the Plain states, um, Dakotas. Those folks are um, much more supportive of both provisions. So I don't think they're going to have as much trouble on the Senate side as they are on the House right now. I'd love to hear what you think about this, Jigger, but I think that the pushback from Enviro's, which has been pretty intense, is insane. According to some calculations I've seen, you know, Michael Levy has done the calculations. The lifting of the oil export ban will probably increase production in the U.S. by 100,000 to 200,000 barrels. And when you look at the carbon emissions that will create, it's 50 times fewer than the carbon emissions will save through the clean power plan. Meanwhile, you're talking about tens of gigawatts more of wind and solar, uh, hundreds of gigawatts more over the coming decade, and a really smooth transition into the clean power plan. I think the opposition to this lifting of the oil export ban is crazy, to be honest. I understand where they're coming from. I mean, Bill McKibben basically is saying we've got to have zero incremental you know, increase in the carbon budget, right? And so you know, I think that's where he's coming from. I don't think that they're going to be able to derail the deal. So I think we'll get the votes and I think we'll be fine. I mean, at 107 today, on Thursday, they actually passed the $680 billion package of tax cuts, 318 to 108. Now there's two more votes, but I think we'll get it done. I, I think that I, you, you, can't, you can't fault people for having passion. If everyone was middle down the road independence, nothing would get done in this country, 
right? The reason things happen is because people passionately care about stuff and call their congressmen and, you know, and get involved in Paris, et cetera. The more fascinating thing to me is how Roan Resch at SIA was able to roll Tom Kuhn at EEI. I mean, EEI is very powerful, and this bill will undoubtedly unravel wholesale electricity markets completely. I mean, the amount of solar and wind that we're going to add between now and 2023 will will create a permanent state of excessive electricity production capacity in this country, such that there is no chance in hell that uh, existing coal plants or even existing natural gas plants can be operated profitably. Yeah, no one thought solar would get this much. I mean, wind was going to get two years, um, and wind is going to get a long phase out now, but no one thought solar would get commenced construction plus the long-term phase down, and then 10% permanent for Section 48 after 2022. And that gets you to the, as the bridge to the clean power plan. Um, I think the thing, the issue with the environmentalists, Jigger, I agree with you that people do want to show their passion and show that they're against it. But what I hope doesn't happen is that they're punished for, or there's any kind of public, you know, flogging for supporting this bill because, I mean, Pelosi really does need to bring her caucus along. And I, I would hate to see the perfect be the enemy of the really good in this situation um, and hope that she'll be able to get it over the finish line tomorrow. This is what I'm talking about, though. I know that you have to be diplomatic, Catherine and Jigger. You're giving them a lot of credit I just I'm not going to give them credit on this one. I think it's insane that they're pushing back so hard against this bill. We have a really nice pathway into the clean power plan now. You're talking when you look at the facts, you're talking about a, an incremental increase in oil and gas production from the lifting of this ban. You look at the private chatter and they're talking about how this is going to be a huge subsidy to oil and gas. Yes, it will be a subsidy, but they're going to be raping more public lands and there is a lot of false um there are a well, lot the, of false statements behind the scenes. And yeah, so, the Land and Water Conservation Fund got authorized for three more years. So that was actually another sweetener that got added to the pot. Right. And it's not like Donald Trump doesn't do it on the other side during the Republican debate. Look, all I'm saying to you is that having that kind of passion, even though they say things that you don't love, really matters. It's the reason why we got this solar extension in the first place. The reason why we have the net metering you know, bill in California. These people absolutely are drawn to excess sometimes, but the notion that I would trade them for a bunch of straight down the middle, you know, people who never call anybody, never write anybody, never protest is that's crazy. Not what I'm saying, of course. I mean, of course, but I agree you with you. You get the good and the bad. Steve. Yeah, of, never yeah. But I'm talking about people. basic governing here. Like we reached a deal. We're talking about a law, a spending package to avoid a government shutdown. And they're worried about an incremental increase in oil and gas production. And they're willing to let the government shut down yeah, and, and, and right, to avoid getting long term extensions. Syrian refugees. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Planned I'm sorry. Was taken off the table and EPA was taken off the table. So, I mean, we don't have those riders. I think a couple of things. One is, Stephen, I, I understand your frustration. Um, Think Progress had a piece where they had a picture of Obama and Ryan shaking hands. And I, that annoyed me because Obama has been working so hard to get the Paris deal done and to get the clean power plan in place. And so that I was annoyed by. But one thing to note that I think is really important is that the solar industry now has some new champions, and they are Republicans, and that is actually really, really good. And, and a lot of those guys are on the Senate side. So Dean Heller from Nevada, Burr from North Carolina, Portman from Ohio, Grassley from Iowa, who's been a big wind supporter, is now also solar. Crapo, another wind supporter, and Roberts from uh, Idaho and Kansas. These guys, you know, we wanted the Republicans to take ownership of renewables. And so I think that is a good outcome of this is that you have people on the right and left who are passionate. And man, if you've if you've got Republicans controlling the House and Senate, you better have Republicans on your side. And I think that's what we're starting to see. And that's good. Well, and the fact the enviros hate this is one of the reasons why the Republicans are going to feel more comfortable voting for it, because they're going to be able to go to their constituents and say, look, we poke the environmentalists in the eye. So we got a fair deal. Yeah, but the question is, does Pelosi have enough Dems? And I think that's what is the scary part. I think she does. I mean, basically, the the president and others are going to whip the Dems into you know into voting for this bill. I mean, I, if 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 we if we weren't concerned that Pelosi had the votes, then the Republicans would have thought that they got rolled. 
the fact that we're concerned that Pelosi has the votes means the Republicans think that this was a fair trade. Yeah. So if, if people listen to this before uh, Friday morning, please call your member of Congress. <laughs> if it's after that, we're probably going to be celebrating. So yeah. but I'm not going to tell you that now. <laughs> yeah, we're recording this at about 2 p.m. on Thursday. So a lot could happen this afternoon or on Friday. And it, things very well may have changed by the time you listen to this show. Yeah, the House is set to vote tomorrow morning, early Friday morning, and then the Senate's going to try to get it done on Friday, although there is a continuing resolution to keep the government funded until next Tuesday. So the Senate could go over the weekend, but boy, they really don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't want them to either. They they really hate working. It's it's (laughs) amazing how little the Congress actually wants to work. I have a lot of holiday parties this weekend, so I'm Really hoping to write a story before that. <laughs> yeah, well, I know. And honestly, I feel so sorry for these staffers. They've been, they've not slept in weeks. They really are working hard. Right. But I do think that we need to make sure that we give like, you know, the power player of the week to Roan Resch here. Let's talk about uh, net metering quickly to wrap this section up. Jigger, net metering 2.0 in California. A lot of speculation about whether they were going to scrap ne- retail rates, whether they were going to slap on a bunch of fees. And wouldn't you know it, the proposed decision is that they want to keep retail rates with, you know, a $150 interconnection fee. Uh, Pretty moderate change. What did you think about it? It's completely and utterly fair. I mean, that's the the thing that people don't understand is everyone wanted this to come down 50-50 where both sides share the pain. The deal was basically that the utilities and all of their lies basically got pushed back. And the solar industry, you know, basically got what it deserved, which was basically, you know, the utilities costs for interconnecting systems are now going to get paid for. So about 150 bucks one-time cost. And the non-bypassable charges that, you know, that that everyone should be funding, which is like two to three cents per kilowatt hour, will be non-bypassable. And so the solar industry is going to get, you know, a two to three cent per kilowatt hour tax on all of the kilowatt hours based on, so they're not going to get full retail rate anymore. Um, which I think is a fair deal. It, it, and, you know, I think the fact that PG&E is still saying this, is, this deal is going to mean that every PG&E consumer is going to pay an extra $45 a month, you know, in a few years is crazy. Yeah, but um, Jigger, isn't there a potential for the utilities to do some more mischief with the underlying rates? Oh, they're going to do a lot of mischief. That's why we got Bernadette Delcero, who's, you know, a rock star. I've been working with her since 2000. And, you know, she basically watches everything like a hawk, as does Adam Browning at Vote Solar. We are now Goliath, right? I mean, what happened in Washington, D.C., you know, is happening, is that we're no longer David. We're Goliath. And the utility companies are David. And they're going to keep trying to throw a bunch of stuff at us and little rocks with their slingshots. And we have to pay people to pay attention to all of the detail and all of the, all of the stuff. But we've got that in California. Yeah, one of my uh, my office mates, Kelly Knutson from Thirty Eight North, is helping Bernadette. Yeah, I mean, look, I we we are now generating so much, you know, you know, like just employment. I mean, the number of people in California employed by the solar industry far exceeds all the utility companies combined, right? So we now have to invest capital to protect those jobs. And I think the same thing is true with SIA. The one thing that bugs the hell out of me is that SIA's budget hasn't changed one iota since 2010. I hope and pray that SIA can actually raise their dues and actually get a lot more people to pay. I think their total budget's like 13 million bucks or something, which is nothing. Yeah, I mean, they did a great job organizing, but just remember there are a lot of people out there working on this. So it was, uh, I think that the the kudos uh, should be spread around. (laughs) For the third week in a row, we're going to discuss the climate talks now in Paris. But this time, we're not actually speculating. We know what happened. We got a deal. It was a voluntary deal. It's not enough to stabilize temperatures to a safe level. But it's the first time that the global community has collectively agreed to reduce carbon emissions. Developed and developing countries alike will commit to climate plans. Catherine, this deal is about as good as we were going to get. Given where expectations were and how long this process has taken, do you think that this is a best-case scenario, Catherine? 
I think this is really different than what we've had before, because before we've really just had a hodgepodge of voluntary commitments, and now it's really all in. It's all about collective progress. I was on a call with Gina McCarthy the other day where she was telling businesses and describing in her wonderful accent um, that there are two main components. One is that there are targets that are iterative for every five years to be reviewed, and with the target of under two degrees centigrade, trying to limit to one and a half degrees centigrade. And but then there's also this transparency that will allow market signals to be sent to investors. And um, so those were the two big components. I, I do think it's materially different. If you haven't read Brad Plumer's piece on this in Vox, go read it. And he outlines why these negotiations were so different. We have, of course, historically focused on binding commitments, the Kyoto Protocol. And then after that, through Copenhagen, we wanted developed and developing countries to commit to legally binding targets. In this process, they scrapped it. After the failure of Copenhagen, they said, let's find a way to bring together these commitments to try to reach a temperature target, but not require anyone to do them, to set up this five-year review process and... We finally got to a point where that language came together in Paris, and that was the reason why these negotiations were successful, because developing countries said, yep, we'll start to reduce our emissions. We recognize the technologies are there and that we have to do this, but they don't feel this added pressure, and there is going to be this chance to renegotiate and revisit pledges. So that fundamental difference was the reason why we succeeded. Well, you know, one one, uh, side message here is that in the budget deal between Ryan and Pelosi, there's money for the um, the Green Climate Fund that um, that, <laughs> that slipped in there. So. Yeah, I saw that. Is that true, Catherine? Yep, so. absolutely. There's $470 million for the bank um, for reconstruct and development for the strategic uh, for the clean technology fund, and then there's fifty million for strategic climate fund, and almost one hundred and seventy million for the global environment facility. So, yep, that this is pretty well funded. This is my point. Why are Enviro's fighting this? It's insane. Well, you know, and so, but so I, I, I do think we talked about this before, but I think it's worth repeating. I think that the the Paris deal matters because by going from top down to bottom up, which is really what. You know, Christiana Figueres' legacy, I think, really is. And I, I really do hope she wins a Nobel Prize for putting this together. Um, you know, she basically forced every government to say, what is the art of the possible for your country? And what most of the governments came up with was that actually we can live without coal. I mean, this is a really clear message to the global coal community that you have a target on your back and all of us are, are going to try to put you to zero by 2050. Um, There wasn't a lot of conversation around how we save the coal industry and what do we do, et cetera, et cetera. This was really just like, you know, we all now agree that we can live without coal. It's a big deal. Yeah. And that speaks to how far clean technology has come too. I think now that we have a suite of technologies that, you know, they're talking in the, in the deal about, um, in the, in the climate deal about technology needs assessment. So putting together action plans and project ideas and bankable projects, as opposed to R and D and, you know, can it actually happen? Do we have the technology? They say, we do have the technology now. We just got to figure out how to deploy it. Yeah, and then the the other thing that came out of this, which I thought was good, is there was I think a lot more conversation and specificity around global finance. I think people, because of what you just said, Catherine, are now saying, "How do I attract this money to my country?" You know, given that we have a uh, currency, you know, that is not necessarily stable, et cetera, et cetera. How do we create a framework by which to to fix that? And I don't think that there are any answers yet. But I do think that people have now identified that problem um, and are focused on actually, you know, trying to fix it. Can I just say that I almost never get predictions right, but I got this prediction right. I said that the U.S. was going to get what it wants, and that is revisiting these targets every five years. And developing countries would get what they want, which is to punt on uh, putting teeth in this agreement and, and having some sort of strict way of measuring emissions. So... We're going to learn in Morocco how that emissions tracking is going to come into play. 
but my guess is that uh, developing countries are going to continue to fight for their own tracking methods and not some sort of international tracking method. But basically, the way that I outlined it, and, and again, this is not like my idea, this was just from the analysis I read, the consensus was we were going to get the five-year revisiting of targets and that we would have to punt on this emissions tracking stuff. So Morocco will be kind of interesting because you have to get into those details now. Now that we actually have these pledges and have done the initial step of getting everyone to admit that they need to reduce carbon emissions, you got to work on that finance piece and you have to work on the tracking piece. Yeah, yeah. and I think it takes off the table the argument um, that a lot of folks over here have made that, oh, we can't move until China moves. I mean, this this means we're all, they, you know, the collective progress is going to be measured. The big question now is, of course, what do these pledges add up to? Can governments meet them? And we're going to have Brad Plumer of Vox on the show on January 7th. And we're going to not just talk about the Paris climate deal, but we're going to talk about international plans to reduce carbon emissions. Is the U.S. doing enough? What does it need to do more of? And uh, try to flesh out the the economics and politics of this post-Paris world. So that'll be a fun conversation. Keep tuned to that. And we end the show now by telling you something you do not know. Catherine, you're up first. Okay, this harkens back to Congress a little. And over the last 15 years or so, I've been really disappointed in the lack of civility um, in Congress. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that members don't live in D.C. and raise their children together and have friendships that are outside of their jobs. Most of them commute home. Even the senators from Hawaii go home every single weekend. Um, There's just so many more um, pressures on them in their districts and in their states. And, you know, there are a few exceptions, like the women in the Senate get together for dinner every month. Um, But what I heard, which I thought was really interesting, was that last Friday night, um, Speaker Paul Ryan, House Speaker Paul Ryan and Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi had a two-hour dinner last Friday night to get to know each other a little bit better. And I'm just wondering if this type of, you know, being able to get together and share experiences and find human bonds uh, can help us get to something bigger. And maybe that's why we're getting this big deal, hopefully. And I've heard the same criticism about Washington now. It's so easy to just stay within your own tribe. And that is one of the reasons why it's been so difficult to govern. So that's a good one. Jigger, tell us something we don't know. So as many of you know, I'm on a quest to figure out, you know, how to fix EIA, which I haven't figured out. Uh, But Alex Gilbert and uh, Ben Sovacool uh, just published a paper called Looking the Wrong Way, Bias, Renewable Energy, and Energy Modeling in the United States. Alex is at Spark Library at, in Washington, D.C., and Ben is uh, at the Science Policy Research Unit um, at the University of Sussex. And they basically systematically found that, that EIA was, had flaws in its model. Um, you know, and the flaws were um, around... Uh, modeling of state renewable energy mandates, expiration of renewable energy tax credits, flaws in modeling uh, the electricity structure broadly, biomass co-firing assumptions, and the biggest one was capital cost projections. Um, you know, the cost of capital for wind and solar is, you know, at six, six and a half percent after tax, where, you know, they were assuming more like 12. Um, it's just shocking to me how, like, you know, we need, like, two academics to, like, figure out what's wrong with the EIA because they don't actually want to fix themselves. I have not read that analysis. Can you send that to me? Yeah. Great. Great. I was at the Clean Energy Leadership Institute last night interviewing Ruben Sarkar, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Transportation at DOE, and we were talking about the future of mobility, exact topic that we discussed today. And Ruben was really good. Uh, This is a guy who worked for 10 years at GM and worked on developing the powertrain for the Chevy Volt, went to Proterra, uh, basically selling and designing electric electric buses, and has been at DOE for a couple of years and is also heading up the Advanced Manufacturing Initiative. And I was just really impressed with how smart he was and engaging he was. And uh, so DOE is a big, sprawling place. Uh, but it's it's uh, nice to hear from innovative people like that who are really trying to make change within um, a very bureaucratic organization. So anyway, a shout out to Ruben and more importantly, a shout out to the fellows at CELI. They just consistently bring in a top notch group. Um, 
these fellows are people who are young in their 20s and 30s. They're intimidatingly smart. They're doing impressive things. And I highly recommend if you're a young professional and you're looking to network, you're in D.C., you want to learn more about what others are doing in the same field, but across the spectrum of clean tech sectors, you should check out CLI. It's cleanenergyleaders.org. And applications are actually open for the spring semester. So I just wanted to thank them for inviting me. And uh, it was a really fun conversation. And I'm always impressed with the quality of candidates that they have. Thanks to Huawei for supporting this show. And thank you, our listeners, for listening to the show. You can find links to stuff we discussed today at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. That's where we host all of our show notes. We're always eager to hear your thoughts and questions. Email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Also, a quick reminder to check out our new premium service, Squared. We are hard at work over here pumping out long-form content, and we've got another fun podcast that we've sampled a couple times here. So sign up today. Don't want to pay the fee? It's a good stocking stuffer. Tell your friends and family you don't want things. You want the gift that keeps on giving, and that is information, specifically information from GTM. Our last show of the year will be next week. We're going to look at the top stories of 2015 and uh, look ahead to 2016. Until then, have a great week and weekend, Catherine. You too. Jigger, you as well. Talk to you soon. Looking forward to it. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.